Good morning, everybody. Good morning to everybody online. For those of you that are in the room this morning and you're like, what's going on with all the cameras? Today, for the first time in a year and a half, we are actually broadcasting live uh, out on Facebook and on our website. And so you are like part of the studio audience in some sense. This is a very big deal. Or you're guinea pigs. It all depends on the way you want to look at it. Super glad that you are all here this morning. The story is told about three women that had died, and, and when they died, they went up to heaven. When they got there, St. Peter was there at the pearly gates, and, and uh, he explained to them, he said, ladies, we have one rule here in heaven, you cannot step on the ducks, which they thought was kind of a strange rule, but they walked in. And when they entered heaven, what they discovered was that there were ducks everywhere, like all over the place. It was almost impossible not, not to step on a duck. And although they tried their best, Eventually, the first woman accidentally steps on one of the ducks. And so along comes St. Peter now, and with him is just the ugliest man you have ever seen. And St. Peter chains the man to the woman and says to the woman, your punishment for stepping on the duck is to spend eternity chained to this ugly guy. Next day, second woman accidentally steps on another duck. Here comes St. Peter again with yet another extremely ugly man. Does the same thing, chains them together with the same admonishment that he gave the first woman. Now the third woman has taken this all in, right? And so she's gotten pretty nervous, and so she's super careful about where she steps. She goes months without stepping on any ducks everywhere. And then one day, St. Peter comes up to her with the most handsome man that she's ever laid eyes on. And St. Peter chains them together without saying a word. And the happy woman says, I wonder what I did to deserve being chained to you for all eternity. And the guy says, well, I don't know about you, but I stepped on a duck. <laughs> I know, don't email me about the joke. It was a little mean, but. To the telling of uh, St. Peter and Pearly Gates jokes, there is literally no end, right? I can tell you because I was trying to find one to tell you this morning in, ch in church, right? I would say half of them have to do with what happens to lawyers when they go to heaven, and the other half I can't tell you because we're in church. The reason there are so many of these jokes is that this has been what most of us have been told what happens when you die. You go to this kind of heavenly place, the clouds are beneath you, and you wait in a line to get up to pearly gates, and St. Peter is there, right? Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and Peter is the judge. He gets to decide if you get to go into heaven or not, and what is it that, that Peter, you know, how does he decide? Well, in almost every one of these stories, it's based on how you lived your life. If you were good, if your good outweighed your bad. Now, have you ever wondered where any of that came from? Like, why is that so pervasive in the culture? Well, like with a lot of religious imagery, right, it has its foundation in the Bible, but lots, if not most, uh, with, with most of this imagery, most of what gets appropriated is actually more, far more fanciful than it is factual. The concept of pearly gates, for example, that actually comes from the last book in the Bible, a book called Revelation, where John is, is given this vision, and in this vision, there is a new Jerusalem, and it's the new Jerusalem that has gates, pearl, um, 12 gates of pearl around the new Jerusalem, which Scripture teaches will come down out of heaven as, as part of the new earth that all believers in Christ will one day inhabit. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. 
But interestingly enough, this new Jerusalem, which actually will be on earth, not in heaven, here's what John recorded about those gates. He said, quote, its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. The gates are always open. And Peter, Peter is the judge of all mankind? Well, that too comes from a biblical source. Matthew records Jesus telling Peter that, quote, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. But most scholars agree that Jesus is not talking about heaven as we think about it, but the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And that, that, that Peter and the other disciples, they were about, when Jesus left, they were about to take the message of the kingdom of God, you see this in the book of Acts, to all kinds of faraway people and places, to the Gentiles and the, and the Samaritans. Their witness, their testimony was the keys that were going to open the kingdom of, to, of God to all people. And so I hate to put an end to good jokes, but it turns out there are no pearly gates in your future, and St. Peter is not waiting for you on top of the clouds. But that does not mean that there is not a judge or a judgment. Welcome back to Creed, our shared deep dive into this most ancient statement of faith in the Christian church, the Apostles' Creed, where we've spent these fall Sundays trying to dig into this because we're trying to really understand what it is that we say we believe, which is super important in a world full of confusion. I was actually talking to a friend this week, and he was bemoaning, uh, he was looking into something, he was bemoaning the fact that right now we have more information than ever available to us, but it's harder and harder to find out the truth, isn't it? And that's why we're studying this. That's why every week I've been asking you to join me in reciting it, and I'm going to ask you again today, would you stand and let's read this most ancient of creeds together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Grab your seats. This morning, the creed takes a turn. Up to this point, everything we've talked about so far, some of it controversial, you should go back and listen if you missed any part of it, but everything we've said we believe, which is what the term creed means, believe, everything we've said we believed already happened. We were looking back, right? Today, this morning, we, we just confess something that we believe is going to happen, that is yet to happen. And that is, the creed confessed, you just said, that you believe that this same Jesus, only Son of God our Lord, is a Jesus, is the Jesus that is returning. And when he comes, this Jesus is coming to judge, well, the creed, you just said, two kinds of people, the quick and the dead. Now, I'm not sure if I've shared this with you guys in the past. I'm kind of humble about these kind of things, but I'm not sure if you're aware I ran a little track back in the day. And I used to be pretty fast. And as a kid, this always seemed unfair to me. Why am I being judged because I'm quick? What about the slow and the dead, the fat and the dead? Why the quick and the dead? 
for the purpose of clarity. When the creed says that Jesus is coming back to judge the quick and the dead, it simply means the living and the dead. The earliest meaning of the word quick in the English language was just that, alive. When a baby first was felt to move in its mother's womb, they would say that that moment was called a quickening. And so it turns out that it's not St. Peter at the pearly gates. As we've confessed, Jesus is the judge, and Jesus is coming to judge everyone, like everyone, everybody that's alive and everyone that's died, everyone who has ever existed, good people and bad people, Christians and non-Christians, all face a coming day of judgment. And look, my guess is that you have probably not sat through too many sermons on Judgment Day. This might be your first. Judgment Day is not a popular topic. It doesn't pack out the pews. People love the creed portions on the Virgin Mary. Jesus' birth, big hit. Jesus' ascension, love it. Those are fun. Judgment Day, not so much. And I mean, today's our first online sermon. This isn't exactly seeker-sensitive, and the worst part is this week, as I was working on a sermon on Judgment Day, my Aunt Beverly texted me, and she said, Johnny, once a year I have all my friends over to my house, and we always go to church together, but this Sunday we're watching you online. <laughs> and I can just see my Aunt Beverly sitting in her living room right now going, oh, dear God, John, no. But the creed states what the creed states. The truth is the truth. In fact, here's what, what Paul, depending on maybe your church background, maybe you know him as St. Paul, here's what St. Paul actually told his prodigy Timothy in regards to, well, in regards to teaching about a topic that a lot of people don't want to hear about. He wrote, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, there it is, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The scriptures detail, the creed affirms, and I have to teach carefully and with great patience this truth. We will all face judgment, all of us, the good and the bad, the Christian and the non-believer, all of us must, all of us will one day give an account. What's super interesting about this is for most of the history of the church, this idea was met with great joy, great anticipation. I mean, for most of the last two millennia, this topic did pack out the church. The hope of, of Jesus returning, it thrilled the New Testament writers as witness over 300 reference to, references to Jesus' second coming. On average, one out of every 13 verses, right? In fact, right, references to Jesus' second coming, I mean, we celebrate the first one, but references to his second coming outnumber the first eight to one. But to us modern day Jesus followers, this idea is not so much exciting as, look, I'll, I'll be honest, as it is sometimes felt to be embarrassing. It, it induces more fear than it does faith, more cowering than it does comfort. But, but why? What changed? What happened? See, here's what we know. The promise hasn't changed. The, by some account, 1,800 plus verses referencing it for the better part of the last two millennia, they've remained the same. What I would argue is we've changed. 
Our circumstances have changed. Our lives into which these promises come have changed. And so they've gone from being welcomed to being, well, weird, right? And why? Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to give you a couple reasons why. Here's the first. Over the last 150 years or so, what's changed is there's been lots and lots and lots of preachers that have made lots and lots of lots of predictions. And by the way, I would probably tell you lots and lots and lots of money about telling people when the day of Jesus' return was. And do you know what they've all shared in common, every single one of them? They were all wrong. Every single one of them has been wrong. And they've done this despite the fact that Jesus himself said, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And what I would argue is that the constant drumbeat of these wrong predictions has done a lot to turn Jesus' promise into some kind of punchline. But I have to tell you that this same Jesus that promised that he was going to be crucified, buried, and then three days again later rise from the dead, he pulled it off. And if somebody could pull off that first prediction, that first promise, I would, I would probably stick with him pulling off the second one. Second reason we greet this concept with maybe kind of a batted eye is for the last hundred years or so, the modern prosperous church of the Western world thinks less and less about the better things that Christ is going to bring us at his re reappearance because our thoughts are, are so increasingly absorbed by the good things we enjoy right now. I mean, you know this relative to the way human beings have existed throughout all of recorded history. We live, well, we live like we've kind of discovered our own little piece of heaven here on earth. I mean, let's be honest, right? When we think of Jesus' second coming, a lot of us now tend to think about what it is we're going to lose and not what it is we're going to gain. And, and the Scriptures say that's dangerous when your mind starts to go that way. And, and lastly, there's this. The reason that, that the second coming of Christ is so little discussed and, and even looked forward to is that it involves a coming judgment. Anybody, anybody a Kenny Chesney person out there? Chesney has this great song, and I just, as, as a kind of a preacher, I think it's kind of funny. Everybody wants to go to heaven. You guys know this song? No? <laughs> I mean, I could sing it for you if you like, but there's a line in there. Everybody wants to go to heaven. It beats the other place, there ain't no doubt. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now, right? I mean, he just kind of nails it. I think you could change the reframe a bit to be everybody wants to go to heaven and walk the streets of gold some way. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but ain't nobody want a judgment day. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll have that outside for you. <laughs> I mean, who wants a judgment day, right? It's 2021. Aren't we past this by now? right? I mean, shouldn't we, shouldn't we have grown up a little bit? Isn't this kind of simplistic and maybe even a barbaric idea? What kind of God do you worship? A kind of God that judges people, who punishes people? I mean, it seems, well, relative to the Western mind, it seems so anti-God. I mean, I thought God was love. How could God love and judge at the same time? My answer would be, it's because God loves you so deeply that his anger and his wrath and fury against sin is so hot and it's so complete. You know this is true. You felt it. 
Every single one of you is going to go home today and you're going to flip on the news or you're going to read through the internet and you will hear about the murder or the rape or the kidnapping of someone somewhere. Literally, we hear it every day and we barely flinch. I don't move off my couch. I wonder how long it'll be till the sports report comes on. Right? It's not because it's so prevalent. The reason I can hear this and it can not move me is because I don't love any of those people. I feel badly that it happened to them, but the truth is I hardly feel it at all. This is why I can eat ice cream and watch the news. But if you were to murder or rape my daughter, I mean, I, <laughs> as I say it, right, I can feel my chest begin to tighten, right? You murder or rape my daughter, and you're going to experience a very different Pastor John. And, and, and my love for my daughters, for my kids, it's as full and perfect as it could be, but it is a poor reflection. It actually pales in comparison to the love the Father has for his children, for you. And thus, I can't help but believe that my anger and wrath at this thought actually must then pale in comparison to the anger and wrath that God feels towards the sin of this world. I mean, if you've ever wondered why the cross is such a bloody scene, look no further than the love that God has for every single one of his sons and daughters. You see, if there's no judgment day, then there is no loving God. Because at some level, if you're just honest, he he didn't really care. His love was mere lip service. A loving God demands justice. He has to. I'll give you a couple other thoughts on this. It's kind of interesting. If you think about it, right? If there's no moral judge, I mean, think about that, right? Then it means that who is to say what's right or what's wrong, what's good or what's bad? I'll, I'll go even further. If there is no judge, Who's to say that anything is truly intrinsically right or wrong? If there's no judge seated on a throne, then there's no moral code or ethical way, more moral or more ethical than any other way. And if you hear that and think that, 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 well, no, you're wrong, John, there is, well, then I would ask you, my question would be, who is to judge? Or maybe better off, the better question would be, who then is your judge? Because there would have to be one. I think about this. Joan and I have lived our whole lives raising our kids and teaching them there is a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. There, there is a good and meaningful and purposeful life, and there is a life that is wasted given to fleshly passions and worldly desires. But if there is no judge, then all of that is not true. It's not true. See, at first, the idea of there being no judgment or no judge, well, that's quite liberating, right? until you start to really reflect on it deeply. And if there's no judge, then how I live my life, how my kids live theirs, it ultimately becomes just, well, I mean, at best it's just arbitrary, and at worst it's somewhat meaningless. One other thing. In, in trying to understand the love of God demonstrated in the grace of Christ, if there is no judge and there is no judgment, then the kind of life that Jesus has called us to live the kind of life that the Holy Spirit, which lives in those of us who believe in Jesus, directing us to live as he's called us to live, if there is no judge, that life, that teaching, that spirit is flat out cruel. I mean, love your enemies. 
If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other and let them slap you on the other. If somebody steals your coat, give them your undergarment too. I mean, if there's no judge, if there's no judgment, then it means that they just get away with it. That it's fine. Jesus is kind of for the bully and against the weak. See, I think that so many of us in the Western world view the concept of judgment with such disdain is because we, we either spend very little time actually doing these radical things that Jesus called us to do, living in that way, or truthfully because we've experienced in our lives so little oppression or pro persecution. I mean, listen, honestly, very few of us have ever cried out for justice because at deep levels, many of us have very rarely experienced it. See, if there is no judge and there is no judgment, how do you ever put an end to the cycle of violence in the world? Gandhi just kind of nailed it, right? An eye for an eye will leave the whole world blind. It's a cycle, right? If there's no judge and no judgment, then vengeance is mine. But that's not the teaching of the Scriptures. It's the very fact that there is a judge and a judgment day that breaks the cycle of violence and an eye for an eye in this world. Paul tried to explain it to the church in Rome this way. He goes, look, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful what to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Then listen now, do not take revenge, my dear friends. And then he gives the why. Why? How can you live this way? But leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do you see how without a judge, those things would just be cruel? See, it's funny because we always, in our, in, in our intellectualism, think we're, we're brighter than God and, and some of these ideas. And so in our, in our intellectualism, we just want to eliminate the idea of a judge or a judgment day. On one hand, people go, well, that's just mythical until you realize that without it, our lives become somewhat meaningless. And on the other, they say it's so angry and violent and primitive until you understand it's the idea of a judge which is the only thing that can quell and break the cycle of human violence. And so, we need a judge. We actually want a judgment day. There's just one problem with the whole thing that makes it a little messy. Tim Keller nails it in, in one of my favorite quotes. He said, if there's no day of judgment to account for all the wrongs of the world that people have gotten away with, what hope is there for the world? But if there is a day of judgment, what hope is there for me? See, I want a judgment day, I need a judgment day, but how can I possibly stand a judgment day? Now look, I'm a good guy. I'm a pastor, love my wife, pay my taxes, but I know me, I know my heart, there's some, there's some not good stuff in there, right? And Jesus' whole ministry, it just seemed bent on focus, focusing on hearts. I mean, some of you know the verses just because they're so, they're, they're, they're so famous because they're so convicting. I mean, just in the Sermon on the Mount alone, right, you've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder. Anybody who murders will be subject to judgment. And isn't this what all of us think, right? Well, how are you going to do on Judgment Day? I think I'll be all right. I mean, I, it's not like I've killed anyone, right? You got that idea from that, right? That's what we all think. 
I haven't killed anybody. But Jesus goes, but I'm telling you that anybody who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. How about this one? You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, anybody who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. I mean, by my standards, I'm a good guy, but it appears by God's I might be a murderous adulterer, which is not good, especially for a pastor. This is why Paul just kind of summed it up. Look, we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We're all in trouble. See, I want a judgment day and I need a judgment day, but how can I stand in a judgment day? Where am I left if it's true? You know, it's interesting, actually. The creed, the creed affirms that Jesus is going to return, and when he does, he's going to come to judge. But interestingly enough, Jesus, when he was here on earth, when he was incarnate, twice, both in John 8 and John 12, he says very directly, I did not come into the world to judge. Maybe even more famously, you see it in John chapter 3. Check this one out. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. There it is a third time. See, Jesus is coming back to judge, but that is not why he came the first time. In John 3, John tells us why God sent his son not to condemn the world. He says, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they haven't believed in the name of God's one and only son. John's going, look, Jesus did not come to judge. He didn't come to condemn anybody, and here's why. He didn't need to. We were already long ago condemned, each of us, all of us, by our brokenness and our sinful nature. In some sense, all of us were judged long ago before we were even born, that judgment that came onto all humanity at the fall of man in the garden. Paul summed it up to the Romans this way. He goes, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death came to all people because all sinned. Jesus didn't come to judge the first time. We already had been judged. Jesus came to save from an already pronounced fate. For just as through, Paul goes on, just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. You remember that, that Keller quote I gave you? It was really more of a question, right? If there's no day of judgment, what hope is there for the world? If there's a day of judgment, what hope is there for me? Jesus is the answer to both of those questions. Jesus is the judge, and Jesus is my hope in the judgment. How so? Well, there is just the most beautiful demonstration of this story, the best way to understand it. Paul actually tried to get the Corinthian church to understand it. It, it happened all the way back in, in Exodus, the second chapter or second book in, the, in your Old Testament. Now, some of you know the story, but I'm not sure you've ever really picked up on what's happening. God has saved his people from, from slavery in Egypt, and he's called them out, right, from the Pharaoh, and he's bringing them to the promised land. But you know the story, God's people like today, have a habit of grumbling. And so here's what Moses records. He says, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people, right? They are almost ready to stone me. Moses cries out to God because he realizes there's a judgment day coming, and he's about to be judged, and he sees where this is going. I'm in trouble. 
these people have made a charge, <laughs> they've judged me, they've already found me guilty. And listen to what God tells Moses to do. It's so interesting. He goes, Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. I want you to remember that. Go out in front of the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff which you, with which you struck the Nile and go. What's God doing here? What's he asking Moses to do? He's saying, Moses, I want you to assemble the court and bring with you the staff, the same staff that, that God gave Moses to pronounce guilt on Egypt and which brought about the plagues of judgment that turned the Nile red. See, that staff was the symbol of God's authority and God's judgment. And so Moses takes the people and, and the elders and, and the staff, and he's got to presume that judgment is about to be passed on someone. And so the court assembles out there, and Moses awaits his face. But then look what God says. Remember, he had told Moses to get out in front of the people, and now he says, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. God says, I'm going to stand there before you, before the people on this rock. Here's the super interesting thing. I heard this this week. This is the only place in the entire Bible where God says he's going to stand before the people. Everywhere else, right, everywhere else, it's the people who are summoned to stand before God. Right? That's our, our imagery of judgment. Everywhere else, the people are, are called to stand before God. But here, there's this exchange. He tells Moses, I'm going to stand before the people. And then he tells Moses, strike the rock. In other versions, smite the rock, and water will come out for, for the people to drink. Bring down the rod of judgment on the rock and place uh, 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 on the place where I'm standing. God is saying somebody is going to be judged and punished, and God says to Moses, it will not be you, it will be me. And some of you know the story. Moses strikes the rock, and water and healing and life flow into the people of God. God, God the judge, is judged, and the people find life. This is why Paul, when, centuries later, when he understood what Jesus was doing as coming judge, he said to the Corinthians about this moment, he said, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock that was sm smitten was Christ. See, it's Jesus, the judge, who's our hope in the judgment. This is all over the scriptures. It's not just a New Testament idea. The Old, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, looking forward to this coming Messiah, how did he describe him? He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering, but we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds were healed. That's what the creed affirms. That's what the scriptures teach, that there is a judge and there is a judgment. Humanity has to have one. But for followers of Christ, for those who, as the creed affirms, believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, our judgment is different. See, our judge is a different judge than, than, than you'd imagine, one who comes down off of the bench and stands in the place of judgment, who exchanges places with the guilty. You have a judge, think about this, you have a judge that stands and takes off 
the black robe and descends from the bench in your place. And according to Isaiah 50, this is what Jesus says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Jesus is the answer to the question. He is the judge that the world so desperately needs and he is the way to stand through that judgment. And there was a time when the church understood this and what it meant. They understood that the justice of God only served to magnify the love of God that he had for them. If God was a God that judged, it proved to them he was a God that loved. They understood that a God of justice who sat in judgment of man was ultimately what gave their life meaning and purpose and cause and direction. In believing that there was a future judgment, they were then able to go out and live the kind of lives Jesus called them to live. And by the way, he calls us to. To forgive their offenders radically for the things that, that had been done to them. To love their enemies. To bless those who persecute them because they knew, they understand that they could leave the vengeance to God. It's not mine. I have a judge. We have a judge. And it was their belief in Jesus, a different kind of judge, one who comes down off the bench and stands in their place that permitted them to look forward to a coming day with great delight. This day of justice, they anticipated it without fear or apprehension because in that day, they knew everything would be set right. My prayer for us this morning is that in thinking of these things, in understanding that there is a judge, his name is Jesus, and he's coming back. We could live that way too. Let's stand and close in song.